Hey, just a warning before we get started. This episode of Resistance deals with some heavy themes and has some strong language in it. We'll get started right after this short break. So a few years ago, I heard about this group of Black folks living in South Carolina in what's called the Low Country. Families who've been there basically since slavery. And even though they were brought here in bondage, they've been able to create and maintain their own culture, their own language, and in a lot of cases, even their own land, which is huge. They're called the Gullah Geechee. Dope-ass name. But the main reason I've been so interested in the Gullah Geechee is because they have ancestral ties to Sierra Leone, which is where I'm from, Salon. Now, I never actually set foot in the low country. I don't know much about it, but when I heard about them, I started fantasizing about what it could be like to be Gullah Geechee. I thought Gullah people probably just down there living in peace and harmony. They live off the land and, you know, just vibe. <laughs> but then our producer, Mac, started telling me about what it's actually like. Mac is Gullah, like straight up. He lives in the community down in South Carolina right now. And he says for him, being Gullah Geechee these days means one thing, having to fight. Here's Mac. Let me tell y'all what it's like where I'm from. I grew up across the street from a cotton gin and endless cotton fields. My dad worked at the gym for a while when I was in high school. I hated that. I remember I used to daydream about burning that shit down. When the sun goes down here, it gets dark. Not a lot of street lights, so the stars are always putting on a show. Spring ties are really cool though because they bring the moon close as hell. It could be midnight, but it's so bright that you swear the sun was peeking from behind a curtain or something. It would almost be silent here, if not for the sounds of crickets, frogs, and cicadas competing with each other to see who will be the next American Idol in the distance. Before it rains here, you can taste the salt in the air. And when it rains, it floods. Most our houses are trailers that sit on top of stacks of cinder blocks. And if it rains too much, Prepare to be stuck at the house all day because the yard is so wet that you might bog down trying to leave. We call them mosquitoes here birds. You've never seen bigger mosquitoes, I swear. And when the temperature does drop, which doesn't happen a lot, it's not simply cold outside. We say, chan. In high school, you had to have a fresh pair of forces to go out every Friday night after a football game. If you came and danced with a girl, Y'all wasn't dancing. We call that rocking up. And if a bunch of people showed up, had a good time, a few shots got fired in the parking lot, but nobody died, it wasn't lit. That shit been jack, innit? Down here, we fish for our food. It's something my grandma taught us when we were very, very young. Her backyard is basically land where a swamp meets a creek. There was nothing to just go outside, catch something, and come back and clean and cook it. Me and my big head cousins would grab fishing reels and buckets and head there every chance we got. And a meal is not a meal to us without rice. Red rice, white rice, pearlo rice, it don't matter. People gossip about the hoodoo ladies and the root workers and the bootleggers who make the best corn liquor you ever had. No hangover guaranteed. Down the street from my granny's, there's a dilapidating stone building. It's a coral green flat with a red door, a red roof, and red letters that spell out its name, handwritten in paint. African Pride Club. 
my daddy was growing up here, this is where people would come to hang out. Him and his siblings were on the African Pride baseball team, and the community would pile out to watch them play on Sundays. They never knew the name of the man who owned the club. They just called him the African man. I grew up in the dark about where these ways of being came from for a pretty long time. Like, if you walked up to my parents and asked them about being Geechee, they probably wouldn't entertain the conversation for long. It wasn't until this one assembly program in middle school that everything started to click. My school had invited this speaker. Her name was Queen Quet, the chiefess and head of state of the Gullah Geechee Nation. She took center stage and told us that she was there on a mission to remind us who we were. I remember she talked a lot about rice and indigo. She talked about our accents. She told us that there was nothing wrong with them. She used the phrase, we be Gullah Geechee. She told us to remember that. We be Gullah Geechee. That moment was huge for me. It was the first real time I'd heard that affirmed. When I finished school, I left home and I moved away. But last year, I moved back. And what I've seen since I've been here is people engaged in a fight. It's a fight to preserve this place and to control its destiny, even as it's being ripped from up under us. I'm Mac, and this is Resistance, a show about refusing to accept things as they are, refusing to let your land be stolen and your history be erased. Because you can't even much get where you're going if you ain't know where you came from. I unofficially moved back to the low country nine months ago. I say unofficial because I didn't plan it this way. I was only supposed to be here for like two weeks. But between Rona and family stuff, trying to leave here wasn't nearly as easy as it was to get here. I made a decision to stay for good about a month ago. In the past few months, I've been able to reconnect with old friends and make new ones. New friends like my boy Josh. Josh is around the same age as me. He grew up spending summers with his family out on land they own in a place called Solagree. I always grew up coming to Solagree as a kid. I would come here and it's like going back in time almost because our community is this is an old-timey agricultural fishing farming community. So it has the aesthetic. It's beautiful. Solagree is a marsh island about an hour south of where I grew up, just off the mainland of the city of Charleston. From almost any POV, You can stand and look out across this never-ending wetland that somehow touches the sky. The island is dotted with tiny houses. So I always remember, you know, the old houses, little houses, really like almost, not slave dwellings because they were built after slavery, but they resembled them, some of them, because they're so, they're small and they were built in that era right after slavery, right, right after slavery. So, I mean, not knowing that history in particular at that age, but I, I still felt the history. I just felt you could feel you could feel something. Like I didn't know what it was. I was like, it feels. It just I, whenever I get on, I just feel something in the air. I don't know if it's the ancestors, the spirits. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But ever since I was a kid, I always just felt something. It was almost enchanted. Josh can't shake the feeling that the spirit of his ancestors are still in this place because so many of them were here. Around 40% of all enslaved Africans brought to America 
during the height of the transatlantic slave trade were brought here through the port of Charleston. And here in Charleston and throughout the Low Country, there was a demand for people brought from very specific places, Angola, Senegambia, and Sierra Leone, because they had the ability to work this land that was very similar to the land they were stolen from. This is where most black people lived because this is where most black people were enslaved at. You know, we were like literally we, brought here. We were brought here still. because we knew how to grow rice. That shit ain't easy. You had to build irrigation systems. You had to understand tide. You had to architect, all that. Rice is, is no joke. White folks didn't know how to plant rice. They didn't eat rice. The tribal histories, languages, religions, and cultures of all the people who were brought here blended together into a people that came to be known as the Gullah Geechee. After emancipation, many of these African people who had been enslaved in the area made a home on islands like Salagree, where they built communities and lived in a world of their own. Salagree is one of the only agricultural Gullah community that's still intact. Essentially, we're, we're one of the only places that still looks like it would have looked um, when your grandparents lived here or your great-grandparents lived here. Josh's family has been living on Salagree for generations. He can trace this back to his great, 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 great grandfather, Harrison Wilder, who was enslaved in this area. After he was um, liberated, he joined the um, Union Army. He survived the war and he moved to Salagree Island and he bought land here in about the 1870s. And the land that he bought is the land that our family has been living on for the following, what, five or six generations. So it's what we call heirs property, which means that when my, my ancestor originally bought the land, there was no deed or there was no will. Um, so the land ended up being collectively owned by all of his, his heirs. With heirs property, if someone has five kids and those five heirs have five kids, by the time the original five heirs die, there will be 25 owners of the land. As time goes by, that number continues to multiply, creating situations where there are sometimes hundreds of owners of a single piece of land. Gullah Geechee families like Josh's lived on land that for a long time, white people did not want for various reasons. Lack of roads, the ever rising tides, and the big bird mosquitoes I told y'all about. Settlers weren't built for no real shit like that, but the Gullah Geechee were. They didn't just make the best of these conditions, they made a home there. But the enchanted land that white people didn't want then, they want it now. A lot of people who still live out on Solidary to this day are getting older. And the only real way to protect it from thirsty developers is to keep it in the family. Heirs property. It's a gift and a curse because heirs' property on one side of the sword, it it's hard, historically it's kind of hard to, to sell it, it's hard to um, maintain it in a sense because it's collectively owned and nobody has their own separate titles and deeds and stuff like that. Which is a good thing because it kind of forces families to keep the land and like build on it and live on it. But the bad part is also it's susceptible to being, you know, taxes rising and disorganization and and swindlers and all that type of stuff. So it's, it's a gift and a curse. And luckily, um, it served us as a, as a gift. You know, we still have it and we're still fighting to keep it. For Josh's family out on Solagree, it's mostly been a blessing. But everybody hasn't been so lucky. Enslaved Africans in Charleston didn't just work on plantations. 
people were enslaved inside the city. Josh reminded me that when Charleston was built, damn near every brick in the city there was laid by an enslaved African person. After slavery, all those folks didn't head to the islands. Some chose to stay in the city and work to buy land there. So Ayers property is not just a thing on the islands. Black land ownership was a thing in the city too. But as Charleston has grown into a major coastal city, developers have gotten diabolical about taking that land back. If you got in a car and drove around the city of Charleston, it wouldn't take you long to realize it looks like a place that's confused about its identity. You have plantations that are still standing, plantations that white people go to to get married, which is psychologically and spiritually very fucking weird. You could be downtown, someplace like East Bay Street, where Charleston's infamous architecture is still intact. You have all these pastel-colored homes stacked tightly next to each other at a place called Rainbow Row. Rainbow Row was once tenement housing for black people, some who had come in from the islands. Now, it's the darling of Charleston real estate developers. You also have these areas that look like someone just dropped them there from outer space. Shiny apartment complexes built for the massive influx of transplants to the city. MUSC students and white people with the kind of generational wealth that allows them to move to cities that they aren't from and start dumbass businesses like infused CBD olive oil stores. And of course, Apple stores, Whole Foods, and all other things white people need when they move somewhere. And then there are the few remaining places where black people in the city have been forced. Either the east side, the projects, or on the shrinking patches of Ayers property land in the city. That's where my boy Fez lives, a plot of land that's been in his family for generations. Basically, just introduce yourself. All right, my name's Fez Jacobs, 27 years old, Charleston SC, Geechee. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about where we at and sort of the history of it. All right, so um, we at my currently the house that I live in now. Uh, my uh, my mama grew up in this house, and my granny had this house built like 60 years back or so. So yeah, like my entire family came up in this house, and but on this particular stretch of road, Savage Road, my uh, my granny grew up on this road, and my great granny been up on this road. So all in all, the same people, yeah, including my family, been here for about over 100 years. So like, what is what does that mean to you? They had a lot of history right here. But also, you're kind of seeing it feed away. A lot of the elders had already died. Because um, I know um, my um, my auntie PP uh, that went down the road, she died a few years back. And then there's um, Daisy. She um, died um, a while back ago. So yeah, like the only real, the only like elders left, like 80 plus years old is um, right here in front of me and then my Ganny. Fez knows what it's like to see land snatched up from under you. Compared to the amount of land that Josh's family has been able to retain, what Fez has been able to hold on to is much smaller. Where Josh's family can still roam acres upon acres of untouched land, you can look six feet from Fez's porch to see land that used to be in his family, but isn't anymore. It's still something though, more than what a lot of people have managed to keep. How, how do you think y'all like able to sort of like resist the developers and like actually hold on to y'all shit? Uh, we haven't. <laughs> Nigga, this this neighborhood used to be um this these there used to be a lot more people, yeah. Yeah. Like this is like the remnants of what the community used to be. 
Like a lot of people are are, are being pushed out down like in this neighborhood. A lot of people that Fast grew up with haven't been able to stay in the city of Charleston, period. Data shows that in 2016, Charleston started to average 10 evictions a day. That makes it the number one city in the country for evictions. Not New York, not the Bay, Charleston. And it doesn't help that land developers have a new vision of Charleston. One that doesn't include people like us. Like, the land developers will hound you down until you sell. I know up the road with that Walgreens, I know that church didn't sell. So, so there's a church that's just sitting in the Walgreens parking lot. Right. Yeah, it's like, fuck it, we just gonna build around you. Exactly, like, they'll build around you and make shit hard for you. Because I know I had some cousins that had lived right there where that Walgreens was. Um, but yeah, or like when you got heirs' property, they'll end up flipping, like, a family member, and they'll end up selling it from underneath, like, the whole family. Or um, eminent domain. Like, with these, um, with the extension of some of these interstates and stuff like that, they'll build it right through your neighborhood. Yeah. Move everybody out. Yeah, so, like, um... Even if you own shit, you don't own shit. They'll come and take it, regardless. Like, you may think that you own it, but nah, the powers that be own it. Like, you're pretty much just on, on it until they decide that they want it back again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This kind of gentrification isn't just about bringing new people in. It's also about displacing people that have always been there. And it's violent. A lot of people are homeless. A lot of people don't got nowhere to go. Um, because I know like a lot of it is like a lot of Geechee land being taken. Like, yeah, like that's a big thing as well. But like a lot of folk then a lot of folk don't even got that. Cause it's like people talk about like, yeah, like the Gullah Geechee land and all this that, but also Gullah Geechee is in the project. Gullah Geechee is in the hood, Gullah Geechee is section eight. Gullah, like Gullah Geechee is food stamp, welfare, and all that shit too. And Gullah Geechee is also having to deal with the stigma that comes with those things. But out of all my friends, I definitely think Fez is the most proud to be Geechee. So much so that for years now, he's gone by the moniker Geechee Identity Extremist online. And I kind of love that because growing up, Geechee wasn't always a descriptor people use positively. When we were younger, it used to be like kind of a slur. Like calling somebody Geechee, like... Niggas, they used to swing on that. Fighting words. Oh, yeah, fighting words. Especially like, especially with the older folk. Cause I remember my um, my um, my uncle, my uncle been from Kentucky. I remember he used to come down here and be like, "Yeah, y'all boy don't like to be called Geechee now." Like, so yeah, so like I I know like older folk that are like that'll um that'll vibe better with Gullah. But like I know like us younger folk, we started getting more comfortable with um with Geechee and started to embrace all that. Mm-hmm. Growing up. I felt that. I think it's what drives so many people in my family and people that I know to not want to identify as Geechee. As kids, we learned that it wasn't okay to be Geechee from adults. I remember being in school, we take field trips and we got the same speech every time. Right before we got off the bus, they lay in. Don't go in here talking bad. That's how they phrased it. Talking bad. Don't go in here talking bad, being loud, and acting like y'all from out the woods. What they call talking bad is really just what gullah people call cracking teeth, which really means to speak. It's just a way of talking. But this anti-Geechee sentiment is connected to an anti-African sentiment. 
It's tied up in stereotypes about being backward, lazy, and unintelligent. And that anti-Geechee attitude isn't just in offhand comments on the school bus. It's in the curriculum. Shit, most of us end up going to speech class and resource classes. I know I did, my little brother did, my cousins did. Like, pretty much had us down near ESOL with the children that didn't know how to speak English. Yeah. 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 They classified me as, like, a little, like, smart or whatever. But even then, I was still put into, like, supplemental classes, like, speech and resource, especially for them to, like, teach me how to talk correctly, whatever correctly means. Yeah, the air quote, correctly. Um... So yeah, I didn't even know why I was in there. I don't even think my parents knew why I was in there. The, the teachers just said, just being um, said I needed to be in speech class. So we've been in speech class. So yeah, that that experience is common for a lot of children. Like say for reading, for, uh, for example, the children will know what they're reading, but they'll but they'll say it out like like in our like in our accent in our dialect in our type of language. And is that what was like for you? Yeah. So like we'll so we'll know what we read them, but we say it how we talk in. But the teacher doesn't pick up on that. So that kind of it grades are end up being on. So grades are lower. So like there's a whole lot of miscommunication right there. So the t- I know the um, the school board wanted to bring in like dedicated ESOL teachers just for Gucci churn. Yeah. In Charleston. In Charleston. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until we got until I got older they were just like, uh. Oh, they really actively trying to teach our culture out of us. I didn't grow up around a lot of people with the kind of pride Fez has. But in the past few years, I've been watching a real movement of Geechee pride growing. They tried to teach the culture out of us, but apparently it didn't work. After the break, I'm going to introduce you to a new symbol of the struggle that has emerged. A flag. And next to the flag, a new generation of Geechee people trying to reclaim their history in order to build a nation. And a generation that gave us the blueprint. Since I got back to South Carolina, I've been moving with this group out here called the Low Country Action Committee. A part of what we've been doing is trying to build relationships with other groups focused on a united black front in Charleston and across the Low Country. There's all kinds of groups out here, from community-led mutual aid groups to the Nation of Islam to Charleston Black Lives Matter. All these different people trying to fight for our people's right to exist here. And one of those groups is a duo known as the Geechee Experience. But to people in Charleston, they just christen Akua. Their main focus is spreading the culture and letting people know we're still here. Recently, they revealed a flag. A flag they say is meant to represent all Geechee people wherever they are. So let me describe this flag for you. It's a flag with three horizontal stripes. The first one is black, representing the people. The one in the middle is blue for protection and water. The one on the bottom is green for the land. There's a crab shell in the middle of the blue stripe for self-preservation. Our right to protect ourselves and our cultural heritage. Chris and Akua told me that people really only bring up crabs to do that old tired ass crabs in a barrel thing. Nobody ever considers how crabs work together though. 
especially in unnatural environments, like a barrel. There's a spear going through the middle of the crab shell, representing the history of the Gullah Wars, wars we fought alongside the indigenous people of this land. Curved around both sides of the shell and spear, there's a generic looking crop, a reminder of why we were brought here, our skills and our knowledge. What do you think the presence of a, of a flag like that, with the whole process that went into it and the thought that went into it, how do you think that would have affected you differently growing up? It would have gave us something to like, I guess to gravitate around as like a source of like, you know, cultural pride and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Something that like, we that the teachers can't like, that the teachers can't um, quote unquote educate out of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That flag, that flag is there. It don't matter what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We got our flag. Like, we got a symbol of who we is as a people. Right in the middle of the flag, there's a black upside-down triangle that bleeds from the black stripe into the blue and green ones. It's a feature that calls back to our past and makes a proclamation for the future. And it's a feature that gets me and Fez real hype. That shit was hard. <laughs> that was hard. I would have never thought of nothing like that. <laughs> That triangle represents an idea that's whispered about a lot in the Black community, but hasn't been mainstream in decades. Self-determination. Um, and But I realize that everybody got different definitions of self-determination, right? Mm-hmm. When you see self-determination on that flag, like what's, what, what comes to mind for you? <sighs> well, I'm a communist, so... Word. It is what it is. Yeah, self-determination... The capitalist relations to the land is um, we need to upend that because um, our people as a whole has been communal. So like even if the land that we've been on, it was communal land. Like our people used to help each other build houses. We used to um, we used to like farm and and like and provide food to each other. Like that that was um, that was inherent in our ancestors. But that's self. But the fight for self determination is still an ongoing thing. It can't be seen as a thing that our ancestors did in the past. This is an ongoing fight to liberate ourselves from this exploitative system. Right. Mm-hmm. When I hear the word self-determination, I think about our right to control our destinies. And I don't believe we can ever be free people while we're beholden to the U.S. So we have to build our own nation right here on this land. And what comes with the nation is the right to self-governance the right to create our own economies and trade freely with the rest of the world, and the right to create our own political and social structures that exist independent of the capitalist and imperialist goals of the United States. After all, we didn't ask to be here. Self-determination is about the right to autonomy. As a people, we have lots of different ideas about what the road to self-determination actually looks like. And there are many people already fighting for change the best way we know how. Like the Low Country Action Committee, the group I'm in with Josh. We're focused on using mutual aid to build community with our people and get folks thinking about what a people's budget in the city of Charleston could do. We're advocating for a concept called community control, which includes community control of the police. It's an idea that was introduced by the Black Panther Party in 1969. And it shouldn't be confused with police review boards or what we've come to know as community policing. We aren't interested in more black cops or body cams. We're trying to take power away from those kinds of institutions altogether. 
One of our best path forwards is to try to democratize all these institutions and get people um, in the power to make the changes they want to make on on the most grassroots level. You know, to have for people to have that power. That's why we emphasize community control, community control of the police, community control of the budget, community control of the land. Like so that to us, that's 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 the step towards solving like most of our biggest contradictions. Josh has such a clear vision of this. Because where he's from, this idea has firmly planted roots. And he took me to see it for myself. Saul agree, that enchanted place where his family has been for generations. On the way there, we turn down a small street called Mosquito Beach Road. There's a sign at the head of the road that says, the Gullah people welcome you. You go around this curve, and the sky starts to open up. All right, so this is called Mosquito Beach. This is Mosquito Beach. We used to all come down here. They had cars coming from all over down here. We had a boardwalk on that side over there. A pavilion, A yep. pavilion on that side. And then we, a big platform where everybody would dance, and it was like a house over there on the water side. Yes, These are Josh's uncles, Ernest and Hosey. And their chemistry is undeniable. Hosey is the older brother by like 10 years, but Ernest has an air about him that makes it seem like the roles are reversed. It's like if Marlon was older than Sean on the Wayne's Brothers. Sunday, Sunday used to be a big day. They both grew up here. In their teens and early 20s, they could look across the marsh and see a beach town called Folly Beach. But they couldn't go there because Folly Beach was whites only. They didn't really care though, because right here where we're standing, they had their own thing, Mosquito Beach. Mosquito Beach isn't technically a beach, not in the traditional sense. You got to swap out sand for marshland and switchgrass. But Mosquito Beach was 10 times more popping than Folly Beach could ever be. The boy used to party hard, too. <laughs> boy, used to party, throw it down. They said y'all used to have jeans. They said y'all had jeans brown out here. Jeans brown, fast domino, they come down here, man. This, this was a, uh, a black Coney Island. Yeah, exactly. You can say it like well, that. Well, you, you might don't know nothing about Coney Island either. No, I, I, I just moved back from New York. Okay. We know Coney Island, then. If he went to New York, if he New York, what part of New York? I was in Brooklyn. Brooklyn? Uh-huh. Oh, shit. If you don't know where Coney Island, you need to go back. No, no, no. <laughs> if, you if you don't know where Coney Island, yeah, yeah, yeah. goddamn, man. If a fight broke out on Mosquito Beach, they broke it up. If you got too drunk to get home, somebody from the community took you. They cleared the land, they laid the foundations, built the buildings, and played the role of security on nights when things got out of hand. Community control. Not far from Mosquito Beach is the Seashore Farmer's Lodge. This was the center of life on the island. The lodge is this huge two-story building, painted white with pastel green shutters. It has a wraparound porch and an outhouse in the back. The residents of Salgri built it themselves, with their hands, in 1915. Back in the day, the top floor of the lodge is where members did business. The door remains shut at all times, but there's a small circular peephole at the top of the door where the community could drop off money. And that money went into a pot, available for everyone in the community to use. Well, we were all all money. We're our own bank. Got it. And oh, the law would give the community members anything they want, but you had to pay your dues. Nickel, dime, penny, quarter, dollar, five dollars. You rich if you had five dollars. 
Yeah, celebrity, you were rich. Different time. Yeah, different time, man. You know, and if you had that money like that, come on in. And they would grow and they give you, they give you seed, gave you money to pay your taxes, the whole nine yards. Saul agrees economy was based on agriculture. And agriculture means farming, which means you need insurance for your crops. But insurance companies weren't doing business with black folks on the island. So they did that for themselves. The lodge was everything. The lodge was the church. The lodge was the school. The lodge was the party house. The lodge was where the berries, where the families stayed in the, in, in, in wake with, with, with the dead bodies. At one point in time, oh, Wallace, you could come down here on Solagree and it was self-contained. You didn't have to leave. You had the church. We call it Beauty Chapel. We had seafood. We had Bubba Wilder store, Bubba uh, Richardson store. We had Bubba Pinkney store. We had Mosquito Beach for entertainment. We had a school. Uh-huh. We it had self-sustaining. Self-sustaining. Yeah. That's what it's about. Self-sufficiency. That's what the law represented. We had no million dollars to loan somebody to build a house, but we had what we had in order to protect you to help you build your house. And it was so physical. We had our own nickels, our, our own dimes, our own pennies, our own quarters, our own dollars. We had those things that ourselves, we'll give it to you. We'll loan it to you. But you make sure you pay your dues now. They created their own world, their own economy, a people's budget. The lodge is a sacred relic from a time when Geechee people had at least some control over the way they lived. How they ate, how they spoke, how they taught their youth how to handle conflicts and disputes. It wasn't no solid Greek police department. The community was organized to protect itself and the people in it. They lived off the land, everything you ate, you or someone you knew grew it or caught it or killed it. It was a communal way of life, isolated from a lot of the racist violence that was happening in the world outside. Shit, until the 60s, only a few people on the island even had telephones. And it, it kind of, to a great degree, it overprotected us. It overprotected what do you us. Mean to, by that? I mean, we were taken away from the outside world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the stuff that goes on, the segregation and hatred of Negroes and stuff like that, was, was it wasn't a part of us. It wasn't in us. Because y'all was out here by yourself. We were out here by ourselves. Yeah. You know, we were out here by ourselves. We didn't know what it was like till you got out there in the outside world to see what was going on. Well, what happened? Y'all went out and started getting big time. Mm-hmm. Y'all go away to New York City, y'all go away to college, get educated, and come back, and, 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 it, and slowly wane. The black migration from the South to the North, it deteriorated us. The one-two punch of the Great Migration and then integration created pathways for black kids on the islands to go to white schools on the mainland. Ernest told me he hated those schools. And more, Ernest told me he hates with even a small window out did to the spirit of the community. You know, and after a while, the, the building kind of went into despair. We didn't, have the, we didn't have the force from the young people anymore, and the older generation started dying off. And then the storms hit, the building deteriorated. The, the, the society wasn't as strong as it was. But I'm not going to lie. I definitely caught some strays there. I went to college, I got educated, and then I went to New York. And I'm not trying to defend myself, but... There's a reason why that still happens, and it's because of lack of opportunity. That's what you do in the low country. If you're lucky, you get out. But I decided to come back. I made a decision recently to move home because for me, after leaving, I realized there's no place like it. 
The low country is where I want to start a family. It's where I want to build community. It's in my bones, and no amount of running could keep me from it. And in being here, I'm seeing how much things are changing, and I want to be part of the fight to preserve the magic our people have made here. So much of what Gullah Geechee people have done to this point has been about self-sufficiency. But the new generation of Geechees, we're trying to take it a step further into self-determination. Our elders might not use words like anti-capitalism or sovereignty, but it's not the language that matters. When they speak to us about what must be done, the general idea is the same. They want us to fight. I'll fight right now, about Wallace. I'll fight right now to preserve this Gullah Geechee community. Right. That's the fight right now. The fight for the land. Fight for the land. Because they're coming in waves and they're taking it over. So if we don't protect it and get a hold of it, like right now, it's going to be going away. Culture, the small culture, the most of the last bastion of a Gullah Geechee neighborhood. Saligri is a wonder. To be able to see this community built by the hands of people who didn't ask to be here, but made the most out of the cards that they were dealt. You'd have to see it with your own eyes to understand why we'll never get this up. You'd have to see the huge white oaks off in the distance, covered in Spanish moss, dripping down like the tree's branches are rocking a chain. You'd have to look out from Mr. Ernest's deck and see this road in the middle of the swamp that one of Josh's ancestors started building. Envision a black man wading through the water, scooping mud and laying it before his feet, literally constructing a road as he goes. He never quite finished. It's still a project in the making. You'd have to take a walk in Mr. Hosey's backyard, a yard that stretches for acres and acres into nowhere. And then think about those acres in context with the other 12,000 square miles that make up the Gullah Geechee Corridor. Right now we have a flag. I can't wait for the day we can finally plant it. Thanks for listening. I want to dedicate this episode of Resistance to the life and legacy of Muhadeen Dabaha, a prominent Charleston activist who was killed in 2018. The streets ain't forget you, bruh. That was Mac. Resistance is produced by Wallace Mack, Bethel Habte, and Aaron Randall and hosted by me, Saeed T. John Thomas Jr. Our production assistant is Navani Otero. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVie. We were edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, Brendan Klinkenberg, and Ashley Lawrence Sanders. Thank y'all so much. Mixing, scoring, and magic by Katherine Anderson. Additional scoring and theme by Bobby Lord. Our music supervisor is Liz Fulton. Original compositions by Drea, the Vibe Dealer, and Taji Mack. Fact-checking is by Isabel Cristo. Thank you so much for everything you've done, Isabel. We really appreciate you. Our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. Credits music 
is Akadonki by OG. Mac told me this is the Geechee National Anthem, and I can see why. It goes in. And special thanks to Chris and Akua from Geechee Experience. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. And you can find me on Twitter at SaeedTTJ. You can follow us on IG at Resistance Podcast. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. All right. See y'all in two weeks. I know you heard about a boss, nigga. I'm a shooter and I've been on how to ball, nigga. Yeah. Man, I'm gonna take these shots. I heard a nigga in the set and leave a boss boy. Man, fuck that nigga dead and feed that nigga who got caught. And we ain't tripping by no breakfast, yeah, we got a lot. And I ain't fucking with no snitch, cause niggas talk a lot. We took them hundred round clips, yeah, that's a lot of shots. Pull out some of them niggas be praying, we don't spend again. Ain't no one on one play with my niggas, bitch, we jumping in. Call my nigga OG if you want that gas, my nigga no fumbling. Fast and G's, that's no big game. You play my nigga ran off again. No plan, no pain, I rest it down, I'm going straight off the top again. I hit you up in your face, now you ain't no great man, you can't talk again. But you won't play a little boss again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why is he now? Yeah, no fumbling. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-hu